Well, as you guys are taking your seats, you can also take out your Bibles and open them to the passage Carrie just read. We're continuing our study through 1 Peter, looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. And as you might have heard, as Carrie read, there's a lot going on in this passage. My daughter, Addison, has a, has a saying whenever there's uh, something that's larger than normal, uh, maybe this might be a, a, a bigger portion, a, a bigger bite, she'll say this phrase, wow, that's a big one. <laughs> All right? And as I was coming to the passage, this is what kept coming to mind. This, as I've been chewing on this passage all week, this is a mouthful. There is a lot to chew on in this passage. There are a lot of principles that we can glean from it. And what I want to do in this sermon is not exhaustively list out everything that's here, because that, that would be a long sermon, that would be a long series of sermons. I want to look at the call, the, the message, the, the overlying principle behind the passage this morning. So you're not, getting a, you're not eating off the, the dollar menu this morning. You're not off the value menu. This is a lot. So take a note, grab your coffee, uh, let's, let's dig right in. Sounds good? Yeah. You guys with me? Okay, verse 8. Paul goes, finally, all of you. Now this is a transition from what he had talked about previously. Remember, he had, he had talked in addressing all people to be subject to governing authorities. The passage two weeks ago that Will looked at, being subject to governing authorities, also be subject to, to your masters if you're a servant. Then last week, we looked at wives be subject to your husbands. And Paul is, or Peter, excuse me, is, is moving from addressing to these specific groups of people to now everyone, all of you. It's a transition. It kind of resets what Peter is going to jump into next in verses 9 through 22. And all of this is coming out of what Peter has described as the reason that we were called, to proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of this is coming out of his continuation through keeping your conduct honorable so that when the Gentiles see it, they will glorify God on the, on the day of visitation. So all of these comments and commands, I think, are out of letting your life be set apart so that when others see it, they will glorify God. It's a way of, of, of missional, living in a way that is missional. Others are seeing the way you live, and they want to know who your God is. They want to glorify God. And, and as we work through this, he's listing out uh, different promises and arguments and, and uh, incentives on obeying God in the midst of suffering. So how do you keep your set-apart way as you suffer? This is what we're looking at this morning. Uh, so he says, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, why these particular series of commands are strung together like they are, I don't know. But it's cool. There's kind of a sandwich that, as you see, as you look at these commands, what's going on? In the middle of the sandwich, you have brotherly love. Outside of the middle, the middle of the sandwich, the meat, you have two other uh, characteristics or descriptions that we have to have, which is sympathy and a tender heart. Now, the word sympathy means uh, same experience, same suffering. You're feeling uh, with someone. And a tender heart is, is uh, in the Greek, it means good bowels, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it, it means good disposition. Like you have a really good deep down inside. You're feeling for one another. So you're feeling with and for one another, and you're to have unity and humility. That's what unity of mind means, like-minded and uh, excuse me, in the end of verse 8, humble mind is a, is a lowly mind. These are the characteristics that we are to have as Christians, and it's all sandwiched. The center is brotherly love. 
Christians are to love one another as family because we are family. We have been adopted by God into a new family uh, who loves and serves Jesus. And our brothers and sisters in Christ are, in fact, brothers and sisters. The same blood, the same DNA, the same power, the same God is in us. And I couldn't help but ask the question as I was studying, what do you do with a command like this to love, to feel in the Bible? You're sitting, you're sitting in a row of people, you look to the right or left, you say, hey, I don't really love these people. I don't feel with or for these people. What do you do with the command in the Bible to feel? Now, love is not just a feeling, right? It says God so loved the world that he gave love in the, in the Bible in regards to action. There's, you can, there's tangible things that love produces. But the Bible also commands and prescribes that we are to have joy. We are to have delight in God. Those are feelings. Be glad in God. What do you do? When you look at your heart and you're not glad in God, you look across the row and you don't love those people. You don't have a sympathy or a tender heart towards them. And the, the Bible's clear. This is the command of God, right? So you don't do this. It's called sin. I think sometimes we try to weasel or justify our way out of this. Sin, not loving brothers and sisters like family, is against what God calls us to do. So what do you do? You come to God and you say, God, I don't love these people. You confess, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't feel these commands to, to love your people, to feel with your people. You say, God, well, I want to change. Give me a heart that, that is like yours. Repent. You say, God, change my heart. I want a heart that's in line with who you are. I want to love your people like you love your people. You come to Christ. This is what Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.4. As you come to him, it's, it's reference to a daily interaction, coming to Jesus, having a personal relationship with him. And we think, reflect, chew, soak in the God's word. We taste and see his goodness. We see as his word as, as delightful, and we seek to make plans for action. This is another piece that we can't, I don't think, neglect. We can't say, I don't love these people over here. This side of the room, they just drive me crazy. They never listen. They seem like they're unengaged. This is why I look at this side of the room. Might be because I'm left-handed. I don't know. But what do we do? We have to make plans for action. So I'm going to pray for these people. As using as an example. <laughs> pray for your brothers and sisters. Get involved in their life. Trust in the transformative power. As you move forward, get involved. Seek to love, even if the feeling might not be there in an overwhelming strong sense. Love one another as family, love one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This sounds very similar to something that Peter said earlier, the passage that, that Will preached on 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25. This is what he says. In verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
to the charge. Do good regardless of what other people do to you. Bless even when they revile against you, even when they curse you. You were called to this. And this is, I think, one of the most difficult ideas, radical things about the Christian faith is blessing people when they hate you. Because what is your natural response when someone curses you out? Curse them back. Right? Someone slaps you in the face, what do you want to do? Slap them back in the face. There's this retaliation that we feel inside. You don't treat me like that. You lash out in anger. You respond in the way they, they hurt you. Everything against us doesn't want to go in this way. You see this, I mean, so clearly it, with children. And it's like it just escalates. One kid takes a toy, then he gets hit, then here come two hits, and then people have to get involved. You separate them. We do this as adults too, though. We might just be a little more passive-aggressive about it, right? This is a concept that I think Peter is getting right from the mouth of Jesus. It says in Matthew 5, You have heard it say, this is Jesus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see where Peter is building his argument off of this. If you curse others when they curse you, if you hate those who hate you, if you pay back evil for those who, who cause evil against you, how are you being set apart? You're not. You're just like the world. Those who are in Christ, those elect exiles, have been called out of the world to be set apart, to be like Jesus. And Jesus not only taught this in Matthew 5, but he lived it out. Peter saw it for himself. Mark 14 records that Peter followed Jesus as he was being led to be accused and be tried. He stood from the courtyard watching people falsely accuse Jesus, spit and mock Jesus, and Jesus, he responded, not by cursing, not by saying, do you know who I am? You're blaspheming me? Get him, God. Send down fire from heaven. Jesus didn't do that. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. <coughs> Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And you know what Jesus said when he was on the tree? When people were reviling him and mocking him, putting a crown of thorns on his head? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is what Jesus did. And I think the key to responding in suffering and evil and reviling like this is not white-knuckling, trying really hard, because everything in us does not want to do that. We have to come to Jesus. We have to reflect upon the gospel. 
It takes radical heart change to bless others, to pray for others, to seek good and peace in the midst of persecution and suffering. And it comes not, I think, from mustering this out of your own strength because everything in us does not want to do that. It comes from looking and gazing upon Jesus and realizing what he did for you on the cross. Because there's one thing, I think, when you keep these abstract realities just out there. Okay, Jesus died for sinners. Jesus didn't revile against those who reviled him. But when you put yourself at the cross and you realize that when you were an enemy of God, when you reviled him, your sins nailed him to the cross. Jesus died in your place. That softens and melts this, this I think, pride. Or I'm never going to let someone treat me like that. How could I ever respond like that? If you see yourself in the guards, the revilers, you see yourself mocking Jesus, you remember how you were an enemy of God, how Jesus died to set you free from your self-centeredness and he was nailed to the tree as he bore your sin upon his body. You will say, if Jesus took my sins, then I can forgive those who say a mean thing about me. If Jesus took all the weight of my sin upon the cross, he bore my sin in his body on the tree. He died so that I might live to righteousness. I can forgive those who curse me. The slander I'm experiencing is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced for me. Amen? Amen. But if that's not enough, Peter gives us an incentive, right? He's like throwing that carrot out in front of us. He gives us an incentive. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, these are good things. This is part of the blessing, I think. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And here's the warning. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You want to do evil in return? When you're sinned against? Not a good thing. The face of the Lord is against you. You want your ears open to his prayer? You want his eyes on you in favor? You want to live a good life and enjoy life? See good days? You want to love life? Obey Jesus. Do this command. Keep your lips from speaking evil. And, and I don't think this is, this is like uh, obeying for salvation. It's not a, a works-based salvation. It's not, this obedience is not salvific. But the message of the Bible is clear. Obedience is the path to joy. You want to enjoy life? Obey God. He has laid out for us the best way to live, for our flourishing, for God's glory, and for our joy. Obey God. This is the incentive. He continues his argument in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? It's a rhetorical question. The answer? No one. You're doing good. You're keeping your lips from evil. You're pursuing peace. You're seeking to live out of this blessing. No one's going to harm you. God's for you. Who can be against you? Now, harm doesn't mean suffering, because what's the next verse? Even if you should suffer, God blessing you and having favor upon you does not mean he's going to withhold you from suffering. Peter does not let us go to this health and wealth prosperity gospel. That if, if you love God, if he loves you, everything is going to be good forever and ever. Expect your bank account to always increase. Expect no bodily, physical ailments ever. 
Because if you're sick, that's clearly a sign that God is, hates you and that you're sinning. He just wants you to be materially blessed and happy. Nope. Sometimes God causes you to suffer. This is what Peter's saying. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now again, how in the world do you do this? How do you suffer for righteousness sake, which is a key phrase, by the way. You're not suffering for doing stupid things. Sometimes we have deserved suffering because we're foolish. We, we reap what we sow. But this is suffering for righteousness sake, doing good things, doing things that are in line with God's will. Sometimes this is suffering just comes from being a Christian. How will you be blessed? Again, I think Peter is drawing on more teaching from Jesus in Matthew 5. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does this mean? Rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. You will be blessed. Another way of thinking about the word blessed is happy. That's what the word means. Joyful. Joy that comes from being favored by God. It includes spiritual well-being, having the approval of God. Thus, uh, a delight in communion with the creator. It denotes a transcendent happiness of life beyond care, labor, and death. It means fully satisfied, blissful, regardless of circumstance, because joy is not found in circumstance, but in God. And how are we blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake? How does that work? Let me read from you a quote from a, a, a girl named uh, Vanessa Rendell Reisner. She says this, What is blessing then? Scripture shows us that blessing is anything God gives us that makes us fully satisfied in him. Anything that draws us closer to Jesus, anything that helps us relinquish the temporal and hold on more, liberal told, and, excuse me, anything that helps us relinquish the temporal and hold on more tightly to the eternal. And often it is the struggles and trials, the aching and disappointments, and the unfulfilled longings that best enable us to do that. This is how suffering causes us to be blessed. Another pastor said it like this, faith in Christ involves turning from the natural self, even our bodies, as a source of our main contentment and security. So the self, even the body in that sense dies. So threatening the self in belittling speech or with pain or with death is no longer an ultimate threat. That old self is not our life, not our treasure, not our greatest and durable joy. So we are free from the raging impulse to retaliate that once rose up in us, this old self. At the same time, faith in Christ does something even more important. Not only does it turn us from the natural self as the main source of contentment and security, it turns us to Christ. It sees Christ and embraces Christ as our all-sufficient contentment and security. This, I think, is how we can rejoice and be glad when we experience suffering for righteousness' sake because suffering for righteousness' sake purifies and reveals genuine faith. It drives us deeper into the sovereignty and the promises and the security of God. And as we do that, as we draw near to God, we are drawing near to joy. We are drawing near to our reward. When we suffer, we are joyful because we are showing God and the world that nothing is more valuable and precious than him. Nothing can take away our joy. 
when we suffer and everything is stripped away, we still have joy because it comes from Christ and no one can take that away from us. He is more satisfying than worldly comforts, than bodily health. And this brings us joy. Suffering is a God-ordained practice and good thing for us to purify our faith and give us an opportunity to grow in love for God. So we see that we are called to have a unity of mind, sympathy, a brotherly love, a tenderly heart. We are called to bless in the midst of suffering. And all of this comes from a transformed heart by the power of the gospel. And three, we are called to live fearlessly and peaceful with an always preparedness to share this hope that we have, right? So when, when other people are persecuting us and reviling us, when we're experiencing suffering and nothing is taking away our joy, nothing is taking away our hope, our peace, our comfort, our satisfaction, we're going to stand out. People might have questions. Hey, I'm noticing that when everything is taken away, the, the comforts of this world, your family, you're imprisoned, yet you still have hope. What's going on there? Peter encourages and commands these electiles to have no fear. Don't be troubled. Verse 14, have no fear nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. We know this from our study through 1 Peter. Holy means set apart, utterly unique. So when we honor Christ as holy, uh, we are setting him apart in our hearts. He has our utmost affections, love, value, priority. That's Christ. And I think this is, this is the correlation between having no fear and not being troubled. Christ, we're honoring Christ in our hearts as holy. This is a quote that Peter is drawing from Isaiah 8. Uh, you know, if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, you see there uh, in verse 15. And, and the end of verse 14, there's a little note maybe or a letter. And you'll see the reference there. It comes from Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. So what Isaiah says, uh, Quoting God, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, you shall honor him as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What Peter is saying, arguing from Isaiah, is that we don't fear anything the world has, we fear God, and that leads to a fearlessness when the world causes us harm. That calls to a peace that no one can take away because if God is for us, if we are zealous for doing good, who can harm us? No one. Christians are not to share the same fears of those who are in the world. We're not to dread what the city or the society or the culture dreads. We're to fear God above all things. We don't fear the disapproval of man. We, don't, we fear displeasing God and having the disapproval of God. We don't share the same values, ideals, and treasures and honors of the world. We honor God as holy. And when Christ is our comfort and Christ is our security and Christ is set apart in our hearts, this sets us apart from everyone around us. Those who believe in other gods, those who believe in other worldviews, because we know that Christ is supreme. He's sovereign. He's perfect. He's pure. He's good. He's holy. He's infinitely valuable. He's our highest treasure. And we want this reality of who God is, in reality, to be true of, in our hearts. We don't want our hearts to be incongruent with the reality of God. 
We don't want to love other things than God is third or fourth or fifth, maybe second on our list. God is holy, set apart in our hearts. We love him above all things. And doing this, I think, brings a a fearlessness. The world asks why. We don't fear what the world fears. Therefore, when the things that the world has are taken away from us, we're set apart. Peter says, always be prepared. Verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, two questions came to mind in this verse particularly. Number one, am I prepared? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. Are you prepared? What does that mean? Are you prepared to make a defense? The word defense, apologia, where we get the word apologetics, make a defense for the hope that you have. Now, and Peter doesn't have in mind, I think, some sort of lofty philosophical argument. You can stand up and debate the reason for God, the the existence for God, why God exists. It means a clear, communicative, concise way of defending your hope, which means every Christian should be able to do this. If you have hope, you've experienced the hope of Christ, you have a reason to defend the hope that you have. You have Christ. And Peter gives us some things about what we can say. I think this would be helpful for us to look through uh, the book on what, what are some things that we can say if someone asks us, what is the hope that you have? Give me a reason. Defend the reason for the hope that you have. Explain it to me. Number one, Jesus came. 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21, he was made manifest for our sake. Jesus came. That's the hope that we have. Number two, he took our sins and bore them in his body. He took our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 3, 18. 1 Peter 1, 3, he has been raised from the dead. Jesus has been resurrected. Number four, he has, been, he has an unfiled, undefiled, imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us, and we're being kept for it. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6. 1 Peter 3, 22, he has conquered all powers, authorities, and angels. All things are subjected to him. In other words, he came, he died, he rose, he reigns. This is the hope that we have. This is true. Someone asks you a reason, this is what you say. Jesus came. He took my sin upon himself on the cross. He died. The righteous for the unrighteous. He rose again. He secures a a living hope for me that is imperishable, undefiled. And he's ruling and reigning right now over all things. That's the hope that I have. Secondly, the question that came to mind is, can I defend this? But two... When was the last time someone asked me to give a reason for the hope that I have? Peter seems to say that as we live, as Christ is holy, he's set apart in our hearts, people are going to ask this. Therefore, the question begs, when was the last time someone asked me? I had to ask myself that question. And any time we come to God's word and we see a gap, we see God's word and we see our hearts. We see our lives. We're realizing right now, maybe we're even trying to you know, scan the memory bank, plug in the external hard drive, see, okay, maybe when was the last time someone asked me this question? Or was it kind of similar to that? When was the last time someone asked you about the reason for the hope that is in you? Now, I know you might say, well, well Daniel, this is not the first century world. We're not being persecuted for our faith. I can't even remember the last time I suffered for righteousness' sake. I mean, I live a pretty good life. The principle remains true. 
The principle is Christians are to live such a life that is set apart, a life that is hoping and, and putting joy and satisfaction and value in God so that when others see your life, it's set apart. And they ask, why? I think as Americans, in a, I mean, we might experience a little bit of persecution here or there, but it's nothing compared to like what our brothers and sisters are facing in, in closed countries, in God-hating countries. I think it's even harder for us because we have to be that much more set apart, right? It, God is not making it like really easy for us by giving us suffering. Like God brings some persecution so that we can stand out. Maybe we should pray for, like that. Bring me suffering, Father, for righteousness' sake. But I want people to ask me, and I hope you do too, I want, I want people to ask me, I want people to ask you, because of the way that you live, what is the reason for the hope that you have? You live in a really set-apart way. You seem to have a sense of peace and boldness and joy that is not, it's not familiar, it's not common. Do we want people to see that in us? And do we want people to ask us those questions? I pray that we do. I want people to ask me that question. I want the mountain church to be marked by this. I want to be so set apart that people ask us, give us a reason. What if like me, you look at the text, you reflect upon this verse and you see the gap. I think we have to ask ourselves some questions. And these are some questions I ask. I, I encourage you to ask these with, your, with me of yourself. Number one, am I fearing something else? Am I fe- fearing being made fun of? I don't want to stick out. I'm afraid that if I live a set-apart life, I'm going to stick out and people are going to notice me. I'm going to be made fun of. I'm afraid that what, what they're going to think when I say that, that I'm a Christian. What kind of weird values and, and, and ideas are they going to have on me that might not be true of me. I don't want that. I don't want to be called a Christian. I don't want to be labeled as a Christian. I don't want people to know that I'm a Christian. Am I fearful of being known? This might be our greatest fear. What Tim Keller says, our greatest fear is not uh, being rejected, but being fully known and not loved. This is you, I'm afraid of being known. I don't want I don't want people to know me, so I'm going to keep them at arm's distance. They don't, they're not even going to be able to tell that I'm a Christian because I'm going to keep them so far away. I don't have an open home. I don't go deep in relationships. I don't have meaningful relationships. I keep everything at surface level. I don't want anyone to know my deepest secrets, my shame, my guilt. I don't want people to know really who I am. They might reject me. This is one of the greatest fears of our culture in Seattle and the greater Seattle area in the Northwest. Keep people so at arm's distance. We keep our homes so closed off. Our neighbor waves at us and we drive down the street and look straight ahead knowing that they're waving at us. Number two, just got the question. Am I fearing being made fun of? Am I fearing being made known? Am I fearing the world? Am I fearing what's out there? There's a a tribe, a a group of Christians that I I feel like I was even in growing up in high school, so I I didn't want any non-Christian friends. All my friends were in the youth group. Parents were fearful of this, so they they only sent their kids to Christian school out of fear of the world. 
We isolate ourselves. We lock ourselves up in our secluded sanctuaries of solitude and silence in our homes. We stick to our Christian bubbles. Number three, maybe a deeper one. Am I fearing a loss of comfort? Another huge idol in the Seattle area. Comfort is my highest value. So anything that challenges that, I'm going to distance and isolate. I don't want anything in my life that's uncomfortable. I want the most comfortable couch, the most comfortable view, so my eyes are not straining too much as I look at my TV. I want the most comfortable food. I want the most comfortable friends. I don't really want friends that are going to call me on things. I, I just want people who are going to affirm me all the time. I'm filling my schedule with things that are self-centered and comfortable. Out of these questions, I'm wanting us to expose maybe unbelief or in, uh, wrongly placed fear so that we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, no, you are, you are my greatest treasure. You are my answer. We must come to and look and honor Christ. Once we see what's going on deep inside, we must come and look to Christ. Because your life, if you are a Christian, has been transformed by Christ, for Christ, and to Christ. Every moment of every day, we have to actively, intentionally seek to honor Christ above all things. It starts in the heart, and it overflows into actions. People see us, and they want to know why, so we have to explain it. As we expose our fears and our unbelief, we, we say, Jesus, no, you are more satisfying and comforting than food, than sex, than approval of man. As we honor Christ, I think everything else will fall into its place. I heard an illustration that uh, Will used with his gospel community this week, that as Christians, we should be like uh, homeschoolers. You see him from a long ways off, and you just, you know. That guy's homeschooled. And I can, say, I can rat on homeschoolers because I was homeschooled. So if you're homeschooled, don't, Daniel's just picking on me, cause, or picking on whoever are the homeschoolers because they stick out. <laughs> this is a reality, right? <laughs> I, thank you, Will, for that illustration. I thought it was so profound, right? Maybe, and I don't know what that makes you think of, you know, the long uh, jean skirts and the bandanas around the head, right? I used to make, make jokes that, uh, you know, it was really hard to do homework when I always had to churn my own butter. <laughs> the point being, we should cherish our role as being set apart. Unashamed. I want people to know that I'm a Christian so I can tell them about the hope that I have. I want people to see my conduct that's honorable that's joyful, that's peaceful in the midst of troubles. I don't want to tell them about Jesus because he has changed my life. I want to see it change them. Is this our hope and our mentality? Man, I hope so. Let's pray to God that it is increasingly. Because as we fear God and honor God above all things, we will increasingly fear rejection less and less. It's freeing. Totally freeing. We won't care about the disapproval of others. We won't care about being fully known because we know that we are fully known and fully loved in God. Everyone might reject us, but yet we have the ultimate approval of God. We won't want to blend into our culture that doesn't know and worship and submit to Jesus because they don't have the joy, the sweetness of life that comes that, from knowing Jesus that we have. We want to have a boldness that comes not in fear of losing comfort and security or happiness or family because we have already been given all of those things securely and eternally in Jesus. I pray that our hearts would grow more in line with the heart of God and more in line with his holiness so that we would begin now being freed from fearing the world 
freed from loving the world. Excuse me, freed to love the world. Okay, we don't want to isolate ourselves. We don't want to blend in. We want to stand out and love. Okay, the, the irreligious, the, the uh, loosey-goosey type Christian might say, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you do. You know, you can enjoy all the things that the world does. The religious, staunch, moralistic person might say, everything that the world does is bad. Therefore, I'm going to go to Alaska and live in an igloo. I'm going to become a monk. Movies, culture, bad, bad. Pagans, sinners, I'm going to keep them all like this. The gospel frees us from that to now love. So we, our hearts are growing more and more increasing to love the thing that God loves. So we'll begin to love our neighborhoods and our cities. We'll begin to love our, our community and our culture. We won't isolate ourselves. We'll move outward as a community together. We'll declare and display the excellence of God, the power of the Spirit in, in word and deed. We'll proclaim that Jesus is more satisfying. And we'll want to know and be known in our neighborhoods, our communities, and our workplaces, our restaurants, our parks, so that others can see Jesus in us and experience the same joy, peace, and hope that we have. Amen? Amen. With me? But we want to do this in a Christ-like way. When people see the way that we live, they ask us, we don't want to say, believe in Christ, you wicked, sinful loser. <laughs> we don't want to have a sense of, of harshness. This is why uh, those who stand with the banners, with, and it's really trying to get people to make afraid of hell to believe in Jesus. I don't think this lines up with what Peter says. Do so with a gentleness and a respect. We don't want to make our defense out of bitterness, out of hate. We don't want to damage our witness to Christ, so we do so with gentleness and respect, and we want to keep a good conscience as we do this. This is what he says. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Elsewhere, Peter said that when they see our good behavior, we will silence the ignorance of foolish people. So when we read this, I don't think we can think that the goal of our doing good deeds is shame. We want all people to have shame, and that's the end. Shame. But the shame and the silence is to lead to something. That they might be shamed by the way that they're treating us. They might feel guilt and bad over the way that they're sinning against us, and they would turn to Jesus. That's what I think he's getting at with shame. It means feeling bad, feeling convicted. That's not an end in itself, but leading to a reflection, a silence, where they're thinking about Jesus and coming to him and glorifying God because of the way that you have responded to them. So we've seen we're called to uh, have a unity of mind, sympathy, tender heart, brotherly love. We're called to be a blessing in the midst of suffering. We're called to be set apart as we honor Jesus above all things. We're called to have a fearlessness, a boldness, a peace, a preparation to give anyone a reason for the hope that we have. And finally, we are to be set apart in trusting Jesus, his power, his ruling reign, and, his, and trust in his future vindication. That's what I think the last section is all about. Verses 18 through 22. Know that if God is for you and you are suffering, evil authorities' powers have all been defeated by Christ. That's the big principle. But there is a lot of things that are confusing in here. 
At least I was confused. There's a lot of debate on what uh, verses 18 through 22 is all about. You have uh, Christ being dead, killed in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You have him going and proclaiming something to spirits in prison. What are these spirits? What is this prison? Then Noah is involved. Why is Noah there? Then he's talking about baptism, which corresponds to this. I mean, this is a lot of, it seems to be so clear up to this point, right? And then it's just, what's going on here? Man. And again, for the purpose of this sermon, I can't exhaustively explain all of these things. I would really encourage you to get a study Bible. Study Bibles are so helpful. I'll even quote some of the ESV study Bible as we look through this. Uh, But one of the goals in preaching is not to, I don't think, answer all of your questions, but to help teach you how to study God's word. So when I come to this passage, these are some of the things that I do. I read and I say, wow, a lot of this doesn't make sense to me. First thing I do, I start texting the pastors that have way more education, way more experience, way more wisdom than me. Help me. I start looking at commentaries, reading articles, listening to sermons, uh, looking at other resources. What does this mean? I'll, I'll talk with people that I know. What, what do you think this means? How have you understood this? I'll ask for the Spirit to help me. I'll ask for other wise Bible teachers to help me. And then I started with what I know. What do I know that Peter is saying here? Well, I know he's saying that Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. I think Peter's offering us hope that our suffering is never because of our, God is sort of angry at us and this is somehow wrath that he's pouring out on us. Suffering for righteousness sake, Jesus, we can suffer for righteousness sake and not for unrighteousness sake because Jesus took that upon himself. Once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. the beauty of the gospel. He brought us to God. That's the whole goal of the gospel. That Jesus suffered for us, and now we've been brought to God. But now, okay, what, what does this mean? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I came across this in a commentary. First Peter for you. Uh, when we went through Ephesians, you know that we recommend the, the commentary Ephesians for you. As we go through Judges, we're going to recommend the commentary Judges for you. As we go through Galatians, we're going to recommend the commentary Galatians for you. These commentaries are super helpful. They're not really deep. They're practical. They're, they're clear. They're concise. I would recommend you, you purchase both of those as we get ready to study Judges and Galatians. But anyways, it says this in 1 Peter for you. All Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3.18. I saw that. I was like, Yes! That's what I want to know. What is he saying? That Jesus, who was born in the flesh as we are, though without sin, died in the flesh, the natural body. He was buried as we will be, but when Jesus was raised in the spirit, that is, made alive in the realm of the spirit with a body that is a spiritual body. He draws on this from other uh, verses in Corinthians, but the point is, the flesh is temporary, the spirit is eternal, and Jesus' death on the cross marks a new Uh, age, a spiritual body, a new existence, the reality of the spirit that is eternal, that's powerful, that will be vindicated. That's what he's saying here at the end of verse 18. But then he says, in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I come to my ESV study Bible, say, help me. I don't know what this means. The people that I'm texting, these pastors, they're giving me different answers, and all of them are saying, this is what I think it means, but I don't know. And I'm going to confidently say before you, I don't know. 
Here's our two possible ways and meanings of common interpretations of how this passage has been understood. Number one, the first interpretation, and this is from, uh, if you want to look at this later, I recommend you look to the ESV Study Bible. If you want one, I'd love to give you one. That the spirits is referring to unsaved human people back in Noah's time. And Christ, in the spirit, went and proclaimed through Noah about the coming judgment. And because they did not obey, they are now in prison. That's one understanding. That comes from what we saw earlier in 1 Peter, where it says, uh, in the spirit of Christ, he was looking and searching through the prophets. Remember that passage? This also comes uh, in 2 Peter. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. A herald is another way of saying it's a preacher. It's someone who proclaims. So that's one reason why people might think it's that. That in Christ's spirit, he went and through Noah proclaimed this message of judgment. Those people did not obey. Therefore, uh, they're in prison. Another interpretation goes like this. And it argues that because the word spirit... Basically, everywhere else in the New Testament refers not to humans, but to spiritual beings, angels and demons, that this refers to supernatural beings rather than people. The word prison also is not used elsewhere in Scripture as a place of punishment after death for human beings. It's reserved for demons and Satan as a place of punishment. So this interpretation views that Christ, after he was killed on the cross, went to the prison for these uh, beings, and basically said, I just defeated you. I'm king. I've, I'm Lord. It's a proclamation of victory, vindication. You thought you were winning when I died on the cross? Joke's on you. I'm, I'm king. So those are the two main interpretations. If you want to dive deeper into those, I'd love to meet with you after uh, for coffee or a burger or, or send you resources that I read about this, but that those are the two main interpretations. And while the message might be unclear, the principle is not. Trust in Jesus's victory and future vindication. Jesus has subjected all things to himself. The unjust suffering of a Christian that you might experience is not the final word. Jesus has the final word. Jesus will vindicate you. And whatever that proclamation of spirits in Noah's time means, Peter picks back up by talking about baptism In verse 20, when he says, those who did not disobey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as appeal to God for a good conscience. Again, I think the point is that just as Noah was saved through the waters of judgment, Christians, those elect exiles, we can rest assured that we will be saved too from the coming and final judgment because of what our baptism represents. Does that make sense? Uh, The word baptized means to immerse. Getting baptized is like getting dunked in water. It's a Christian tradition of demonstrating an outward, uh, it's a way of demonstrating an inward reality in an outward way. So you get baptized, you're saying, who I was is no more, I've been washed clean, I've been raised to walk in newness of life. And like Noah was saved through water, which Peter is saying is a foreshadowing or a type of baptism, we have been saved. Our baptism serves as a seal, a sign of our salvation, our soon future deliverance. 
Peter has told us, uh, though, that, that baptism does not save us. We can't make that mistake or, or try to go there because he says it's not an external cleansing. It's not a removal of dirt from the body. Baptism does not save us. Physical water does not provide cleansing, right? Peter has already told us in the beginning of the passage, in the beginning of the letter, that God saves us by his great mercy. He's not going to say, oh, and, and by the way, it's God and his great mercy, and also you have to get baptized to be saved. That, that would be kind of a weird, convoluted way of, of works-based salvation, works-based religion. <coughs> Baptism, quote, saves you because of what it represents. That's what I want you to, that's what I want us to understand. Baptism is, as Peter says, an appeal to God for a good conscience, or some translations say, from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So we believe that baptism represents something that has happened in your heart. It's an outward expression of that you have been united with Christ in his death, that you have been dunked in the water, symbolically having your sins cleansed, and you have been raised out of the water to walk in newness of life. And Peter is saying, because you have been baptized, you can rest assured that like Noah and his family, this small minority in the midst of an evil generation, see the similarities? These elect exiles who are a small minority in the Roman Empire, take heart that you will be vindicated. This is how he closes, take heart. We can rest assured that whatever suffering or persecution or unjust things, reviling, cursings people cause upon us, we can rest assured that we will be vindicated. We can trust in Jesus' victory who has defeated sin and Satan and death. He says, Jesus has gone into the heaven. He's at the right hand of God and angels, authorities, powers, all been subjected to him. We can have hope anchored in Christ. We can take heart because Jesus had the final word. He has the final word and he will have the final word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.